All right. So we finally have, um, I don't know. I don't have an official title for you. I'm going to have to make like an appendix or something for the, the DNC site, uh, dnc.show for anyone that hasn't seen it. Uh, but just like keeping, keeping up to date with everyone's title and current standing of the friend, the friend status. Uh, maybe it can be, uh, Crichton's, something that Crichton manages where he, he, he keeps tabs on all the relationships, like best friend, ex best friend of the show. You would love to keep tabs on that. <laughs> Probably already does. Um, yeah. So we got Mikhail. Mikhail is here, uh, producer of the show, Mikhail. Uh, maybe the, the first, I don't want to call you a super fan because that feels weird. Uh, first, like, friend of the show, maybe? I don't know. Uh, probably. I've been listening since uh, episode, like, 15, 20, somewhere, somewhere back way in the day. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I bugged you and Paul in the old Slack channel for months and months on end. The Slack channel? I forgot about that. Yeah. That that's where it started. That's where the that's where the community of DNC started back in the at least that I know of back in the Slack channel days. Yeah, I felt I always felt kind of bad about that because I didn't like to have Slack open, so I didn't hang out there a whole lot. So I would pop in every couple of days and and reply every now and then, but I just didn't like to have Slack open. And it was pretty busy at that point. Like I'm pretty sure I spent like I had it open in the background because I had a couple of them going, and it was like a constant stream of people chatting about something or other. <laughs> yeah and it was it was just nice because like i uh with my my day job i don't get to have those conversations a whole lot so that's kind of where the podcast come in and also where the slack room and yeah yeah spectrum and discord all that stuff comes in it's just the ability to chat with people right yeah yeah so so I, this is your first episode so i guess i can ask like what is your what is your day job what do you do um so i work in higher education i'm actually at a one of the big universities up in canada in one of their IT departments. And while my job description is not particularly accurate, <laughs> I kind of cover three general roles. I help out on the support side, help out on the development side, and I help out on the sysadmin side. So I'm like, uh, I'm the, the jack of all trades in the office. Um, right. Every, every single day, every single week, slightly different because while well, I, I like taking on new projects, sometimes I don't know what I'm doing and I got to, gotta learn on the fly real quick right yeah that's it's been obviously i already knew what you did and it's funny because for from week to week uh you'll be messaging me in our discord channel and you'll say something like what are you doing what are you doing over there why how did you ever like end up in that situation <laughs> yeah i appreciate sure paul's like com- like express at times like what are you are you just jumping from job to job you have the, the most crazy job in the world no I, I, like i don't know I, I i always kind of enjoyed i guess my job is a little bit similar maybe not as spread out because i'm not jumping from department to department per se yeah i change hats a lot so like yesterday uh we were visiting some family friends and uh i had to i just had a lot on my plate and so what i did was i just tethered down my phone and jamie was driving and i was sitting in the passenger seat and i was writing documentation <laughs> I was writing help articles in our in to our intercom knowledge base. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's fun. Like I I won't I won't deny that having so many things because like right now I am looking at well we're doing two things right now. We went to Smashing Conf in Toronto, which was uh, kind of fun conference um, over there. But we're still a Cold Fusion shop, and if you don't know what Cold Fusion is, it's a archaic language framework that adobe bought and kind of still has um it's crappy let's just say that um it's like php in the old days it's really really bad and so the rest of the team got finally got exposed to view 
React and like all the other serverless functions and all this cool stuff happening. So we're we're trying to like kind of get them rolling in the view world. We're gonna do some test stuff possibly with .NET Core and Vue. So that's kind of cool showing other like spreading the view love. Yeah. Um, while I was there, I got a chat with uh, Sarah Drasner. Um, friend of the show, Sarah Drasner, I think we can call her now. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> and it's just like, just talking to her, she's so good at like just spreading the knowledge that she's got kind of bundled up in that head of hers and just all the cool things you can do with Vue. So we're trying to get them on board um, with some some test projects. And then other big project is looking at deployment stuff because we're, we're currently like uh, very monolithic app style stuff. So we're looking at stuff like, I know you were talking last week or so about uh, Daku. So we're currently looking at Flynn, okay. uh, like for my side project stuff, as well as at work for, for just handling that deployment side of things. Because right now I have, I don't know, three, four, five different accounts on different VPS sites. And each of them have one or two droplets or nodes going. And it's like the ability to kind of just combine those all into one thing sounds exciting. And it would be kind of nice to get my hand. Like I used to use Docker a lot. Don't use the times anymore, but it'd be nice to get my hands dirty in that, uh, in that world again. Sure. So you, I mean, so I guess to back up for a second, talking about Flynn and Daku, Essentially, so Flynn is, Daku would be the least complicated. Flynn would be more complicated than Daku. But essentially, uh, with Daku, you, people, the people build as like, oh, it's your own Heroku uh, setup. Yep. Basically, that means that you can set up a, a server on a VPS somewhere like DigitalOcean or Linode or whoever, install Daku on it, and then you can get pushed to it and you can use build packs like Heroku does. So it's called like 12th. 12 factor app or whatever I think it's I'll have to add um, add that to the show notes but so I, I mean I've been using that myself actually I just moved all of my stuff I had a couple of servers on Dio I had a couple of things on Heroku I had a couple of things on Netlify and I, I, I like each service I like Heroku I like Netlify I like Dio but I don't like having to context switch or remember where all my stuff is at. And I don't like to split billing too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because at minimum on Heroku, a hobby dyno that doesn't uh, get shut off after a certain amount of time. Because uh, the free ones, they're, they're up for a few hours and then they, they go to sleep. And then when a request comes in, they wake back up and the, the app spins up. But the first request almost always times out because it takes, you know, it takes a while for all that stuff to happen. And so the minimum price for a free dyno or not a free dino, uh, a hobby dev dino, I think they call it, is like seven bucks. So per app, you're paying $7. And they, you know, my apps don't use a lot of RAM or a lot of CPU. So I could consolidate them all to one DO server and pay $5 for everything. So that's what I ended up doing. I used Daku, installed it on a DO server. I think I'm using the $10 a month one. And right now I have one Daku server where I can push, like get push deploy to, to all of my different apps. Um, they're all like Daku has a Let's Encrypt plugin. So they're all, they all have SSL. I got a domain like Heroku has HerokuDNS.com. And that's how you, you, you point your, uh, C names to that. That's how you get custom domains to work. And so I did something very similar. I bought a DNS domain for myself. And so all of my C names just point to that one server and the Daku app at one server hosts everything. So it's hosting a couple of Nux sites. It's hosting an Elixir app. Uh, it's hosting a statically built site. Uh, it's pretty, yep. pretty robust. And Flynn kind of, I think you can do something similar, right? But it, like Daku is kind of like a single host setup. Yeah. So the big thing with the big difference between Daku and Flynn is that Daku's like horizontal scaling single, wait, no, vertical scaling single host like 
as as you need more resources, you just get a bigger server to put Docker on. Sure. Flint can work that way, but Flint's meant to be worked in a cluster of at least, uh, I think their minimum is three nodes in a cluster. Okay. So then they do a round-robin deployment. So once you get your three nodes spun up and they're all part of the same cluster, as you deploy apps, they kind of get to the first server, then the next step to the second server, then the third, and then back around. Okay. And there's a round-robin-style deployment. The benefit of that is, one, you get high availability. But if, say, you have a large app, say DK is on a cluster, and you guys have three web processes, there'll be one on each single node. Mm-hmm. One of those nodes goes down, the other two keep serving requests, and no one's, no one's the wise that your app's gone down, right? So it, it's it's really nice for that. Um, I played around with dropping, like, killing off a node or two to see what happens. And, like, I had a constant request cycle going, and it was just constantly working, which is really, really cool. The problem with Flynn is that it takes a little more setup. Because for what I've gathered, and I haven't done it, but from what you were saying, Docu was like, you just follow the installer, you point to the VPS, you do your thing, and you're done. Yeah, pretty much. You have to do some DNS routing and stuff, but with Flynn, you gotta you got to set up three nodes. You're already there. It's a script that does most of it, but still, you got to set up three separate nodes. you got to connect to their discovery service so that the three nodes can find each other. And then once they can find each other, they then join a cluster. And then once you have the cluster, you got to set up the DNS and the routing. And it's a little bit of work, but it, it is really like a self-hosted Heroku, just like Docu. It's just you get that high availability. And the other thing is, it's nice to have lots of small ones. So I have a couple of $5 droplets currently in a cluster. And that gives me, what, three gigs of RAM of application to deploy. Like, that's that's not that bad, right? That's the, what the, you get two gigs in the $10 and I don't know what you get for the 20 bucks. But like you get, can, I can consolidate virtually, I spot maybe like $40 of VPSs or $30 in separate VPSs, combine them all into into the cluster. And, you know, it's money savings, great and all, but it's, it's also, I feel like it's a little bit more robust mm-hmm. that if something goes wrong or the GitHub AMA issue side project I have, like, oh, suddenly I've got like, hundreds of people using it and i need to scale up the web server or the the redis queue and stuff like that oh just there's literally an interface i can click an up and down arrow to deploy more instances right so it kind of gives you that heroku like ease of use but not obviously paying heroku and, and dealing with their stuff wait so you said you you click an up and down arrow is that a web u is there a web ui for flynn that's the other thing Flynn has is you get like it's it's rudimentary um i'll put some screenshots in the show notes um but it's it's helpful right it's like i'm just gonna log in quickly now and yeah so i go i click on my app once i log in and there's like web worker and you just kind of click an arrow to get two web workers and now i've got my app deployed on two of them right so like that's really cool you can instantly scale out without having to to quite literally do anything. Yeah, we just hit that, hit save, and a couple seconds later, it will, you know, take up your Git repo or your bundle or your Docker or whatever and uh, deploy that to one of the other members of the cluster, and suddenly you have, uh, in theory, twice twice the capacity, right, to serve requests. So it's it's nice. The web interface, obviously, is not, that's not their product. It's not the greatest, but it's nice to just give you quick access mm-hmm. to do that instead of going in, SSHing in, changing some configs and stuff. Like it's, it's nice. It's I'm not going to complain. It's pretty nice tool, and it is open source, so you can go on the site and install it and stuff. But it's 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 nicer than I expected. I'm pretty sure I played with Daku back when it first came out a number of years ago. And it wasn't the nicest experience. Um, But based on what you're saying and based on how Flynn is, they've definitely started to get that platform as a service or whatever their version this is. Got that got those products kinda kinda down pat at the moment. Yeah, I mean Daku so so 
I I'm fine with my my side projects and sites being vertically scaling. Like you said, horizontally scaling is adding more nodes to a network. To to basically, you're just shuttling requests to a new node. That means that lightens the load on the other nodes. Uh, and vertical scaling, you just get a bigger server, a more powerful server. And I'm fine with that, which is why I picked Daku. Also. I don't need, I just didn't want to deal with the notes. I don't the DevOps stuff to me is still really um, just intimidating, really intimidating to me. It kind of always has been. That's never really been my wheelhouse, but yep. Daku seemed much more approachable than Flynn did. So that's what I ended up doing. And it, it works really well because, so when I, when I mentioned like people bill it as having your own personal Heroku in the cloud, it's, it's pretty much that without Heroku's nice web UI. Yeah. Because it works off of buildbacks. And if you're not familiar with the buildback is, it's really just a shell script that shows Heroku how to. So for example, if you're using, if you're deploying a node app and you use the node build pack, the node build pack contains instructions how to install a node, how to install NPM or Yarn or whatever. So it just installs all the dependencies. It's, it's similar to a Docker file, I guess. And with Docker, you, 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 you uh, SSH in your server. They actually have a CLI or someone made a CLI uh, that you can do this without having to SSH in your server. It just kind of does it for you. Mm-hmm. But um, you, you log in, you do something like Docker apps colon create app name, and that goes ahead and, and spins up a new app. It's empty at that point. Then you add a Git remote to your repository. So it's like Git remote add Docker, Docker at whatever host.com colon app name, and then Git push, and that's it. So if you have everything configured correctly, if you've added a proc file, uh, if you've you know if you've got everything configured correctly, your app deploys in a couple of minutes. Yeah, uh, I think with Node and Elixir, it, it only takes a couple of minutes, and then it's it's actually live. So it starts everything, gives you uh, by default. I think it's like subdomains. So mine would be like some site dot some DNS dot com, and then you point your C names to that and you've got an up and running app and then to deploy updates you just get push again and the updates are live it's crazy yeah I know the, the ability to get push and actually have something show up a, a few minutes later that that feeling is still it still feels like butterflies and I know we've had that for years and years and years but once you have it set up and going just the fact that you can oh I need to make a quick change quick commit get push and it's all live yeah um, and, and Flynn works the same way I do think you could probably emulate a Flynn setup with Docker if you use the load balancers that uh, Linode or DigitalOcean or whatever VPS host you use has built in, um, like have two. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Have two Docker servers independent, but you're pushing to both. They're both running the apps and have the load balancer that they run, which is like, I think, 20 bucks a month or something crazy like that. Yeah, it's 20 bucks. But, but I mean, in theory, if you got to the point of scaling and you need a high availability and clustering, that is the other option, obviously, you, to get most of the benefits of Flynn. Because the Docker docs did seem a lot simpler <laughs> um just to, to get up and going i haven't quite figured out the ssl side of things as you found out with flynn sure they don't have any tools built in i think doc has got an official let's encrypt plugin or yep. uh, something like that uh, they don't have that yet um, it's a it's a feature request and it's it's an open ticket but i don't i don't see any movement in that direction quite yet sure um, but so yeah you'd have to manually go through and and either request a wildcard cert which let's encrypt finally came out with or individual certs every time someone pushes an app. But the benefit is you don't have to then, it's all, you know exactly how it's all working. You're running your own DevOps at that point, right? So it, it gives some nice visibility into to how things are working, which having that knowledge is always, it's always nice to have, I think. Yeah. 
obviously I, I'm slightly biased. I do sysadmin stuff at work. So like to me, I'm comfortable going in and managing a Linux server or a Windows box kind of thing. Um, but I feel like as developers, learning a little bit of the DevOps in the sysadmin side can help with the throwing problems over the wall issue. I find a lot of places where the dev team will say, hey, this isn't working and they'll throw the problem over to the sysadmin team, which say, hey, it should be working. And they'll throw it back. And there's, there's a lack of collaboration because no one knows what, what the other one's talking about. You don't know enough about like simple sysadmin stuff to, to give them the right information. If you learn a little bit, it's, it's, it's like the do designers code. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's having a little bit of knowledge goes a long way to helping communication between these two teams improve. It helps bridge the gap, I think. It's like that the classic Star Trek episode. Uh, I can't remember the title right now. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, and now I'm blanking on the lines, but Picard is stuck on a planet with another captain and they're trying to learn how to speak to each other. And so the whole episode is, okay, so so they're stuck on the planet and the... Uh, I don't know what to call him besides the alien captain, non-Picard captain. Maybe that's a little bit less uh, exclusion, exclusionary. Uh, but he keeps talking to Picard and Picard doesn't know what he's saying. And he's speaking in English, but he's he's saying, he's basically just saying what sound like riddles. Uh, and what, how, it turns out that the alien that races way of speaking is through metaphors. So they talk to each other through sharing uh, stories of things that have happened in metaphors and experiences. And so once the the Star Trek team figures that out, they're able to communicate and solve the problem. But that's kind of what it feels like sometimes when you have two groups of people working together and they don't know how to communicate. There's just this funnel, there's just this fundamental like you're speaking the same language, but I don't actually understand what you're trying to relate. I don't understand what you mean. No, and, and it's it's hard. Like there's a lot there's a lot in each field. Obviously that's why they're they're separate fields, but but getting just that little bit of information helps, I think. It's just learning. You know, I, I like to learn things, and, and hopefully lots of other people do too. There's always always something new to learn. Yeah, so it's funny because you talk about like throwing the problem over the wall, and it's just that's a problem that I haven't really had. So I haven't worked in large shops. I, like The biggest dev team I've worked on was three people. I think we had six designers at the time. Yeah, but most of us were working on different projects at the same time. So I've never, I've never really run into that problem where people are uh, passing the buck isn't the right term, but just kind of like you said, throwing the problem over the wall. I don't know what the, like this isn't my problem. You deal with it. This is my problem. You deal with it. And just tossing it around. Yeah. So I guess another question I had was you mentioned you're digging around. So so you mentioned you're working for a university and you mentioned checking out Flynn for deployments and trying to smooth that out because right now you have pretty monolithic stuff. Yep. And my first thought was, I think I asked you this a while back. I was like, why not use something like Heroku? And you're like, ah, we can't do that. <laughs> so if you ever work for, go- so it's probably the same for government and certain like healthcare and universities. We're slowly changing, but pretty much everything we do has to be self-hosted. There's some laws, there's some school regulations. Sure. So we look at, um, we're just moving out to Active Directory, which is uh, not something I'll explain on the show. <laughs> but we're looking at, at moving some some services over to, to different systems. And we so you go online and you look at the various companies that provide various services that you need. And the minute there's cloud or anything that's hosting, we just have to say no. We just, we can't even look the product. It could be the world's best product. And if it has any form of user data associated with it, it's a no. 
Hmm. And so that just, I mean, we run our own data centers, so we, we have the capacity to host pretty much anything we want. But most, most developers, right, if you're working in an agency or you're working at a product or you're doing clients work as freelancer and stuff, you don't have to think of where does this data live, right? Right. You push it to GitHub, you push it to Heroku, you push it to Netlify, and, and you know what I mean? You, you don't think twice of where the data is going. Fortunately, but also unfortunately where I work, we constantly have to be thinking about that. If there's any chance that the data that is at all related to what we do or, or people that work there, we can't just be pushing it somewhere random, right? It has to it has to be internal, it's gotta be encrypted, it's gotta be it's gotta be secured left, right, and center. Um and it it, it makes things difficult because there's lots of nice products out there. Um Heroku's a great product. As much as we're talking about other things to use, it's a great product. Netlify is a great product. DigitalOcean and Linode and uh, Scaleway and all these other VPSs, they're, they're great products, but unfortunately, not everyone gets to use the fun toys. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of also why we're, we're stuck a little bit on some older technology, is that a lot of the new stuff is is very cloud-focused, right? A lot of products don't even think of, oh, what if this person can't actually use that cloud version? Is there a way we can provide a self-hosted or on-premise solution? And oftentimes they do. And then oftentimes they charge 10 times as much for the on-site product. <laughs> right, the enterprise version, right? Yeah, yeah we, and that's the thing, right? We're not an enterprise, we're a school, we're, we're government-funded, but we're constantly looking at enterprise solutions because they're the only thing that provides the um, the on-site option, unfortunately. Yeah, I've, I think I've just been spoiled my whole life where uh, I was working freelance and I was making WordPress sites and I was like, just throw it on 11.2 or whatever I was using at the time, a small orange what you know uh, insert insert x host and uh didn't really have to think about it at all uh really i just had to think about is my client going to be able to you know have somebody else change this in the future if they need to and that was that was about the extent of it yeah. i mean in thinking about it i think that i guess it kind of goes back to the last episode i recorded with paul where we kind of talked about privacy and we talked about the trend where there's you know Apps are just requesting more data and more data and more data, either requesting or taking either one of the two, right? Yeah. Uh, and it seems to me like it would be nice if more people thought about, like you're saying, if you have to think about, okay, where does my data live? Where do my, more importantly, where does my user's data live? What is where is the information stored? How is it stored? How is it encrypted? How is it kept safe? Well, as much as people complain about GDPR, um, it has brought that topic back to the forefront of people's minds. Hopefully, yeah. It's not. I'm, I'm not going to say it's a great law. Um, it's got it's got its issues, and we're still dealing with that with our um, European students. Sure. But it, at least it's it's made people aware of privacy a little bit more. I'm sure people are complaining about all the cookie messages they got to click on every single website now yeah. um, versus just European websites. But it's something that people should be thinking about, right? There's been, over the years, the recent years, there's been so many breaches of people's personal information that as developers and sysadmins and, and people like that, it's, it's our responsibility to at least think about it, how we're handling people's data, how much do we actually need? Like, can we just get away with an email address? You know, do we need their last name? Do we need their 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 uh, postal code? Do we need a profile picture? Can you know what I mean? There's, can we find ways to provide as good of a product to them without taking every piece of personal information that they have? So it's it's interesting. It's if uh, if you are interested in in stuff like posted breaches unrelated, I would say check out the site haveibeenpwned.com. It's run by this Australian uh, guy called Troy Hunt, I believe. Oh, yeah. And what he does is he, he collects breaches and goes through, verifies the breach's actual legitimate data because um, he gets a lot of fake breaches. 
shoves that into this absolutely massive database of breaches. And if you put your email address in, he'll go through and see, is your email in any of these breaches? Mm -hmm. And then you can get notified and say, hey, I should probably go change my Adobe account because they were breached a few years ago. Or, oh, right. Um, and if you're a one password user, I believe they've integrated it right into one password as well, which is really, really cool. I think it's called Watchtower. Yep. Yeah. I think they use his database to do their Watchtower stuff now. So, uh, oh, cool. I, I think that it's at least worth taking some time and just thinking about the data that we're storing on our customers and users. Yeah. I mean, I had, I actually had a conversation about one password last night with a couple of people uh, that were asking me about, they're like, oh, you do tech stuff. And they just, you know, everyone just has questions and, and I'll oblige the questions. And so I was giving like a tour of one password because someone was like, oh, someone told me about this, but I, it felt, it, I don't, it didn't seem secure. Like how can having one password be more secure than me having a notebook full of them? So I was like, well, you know, getting to the whole, the whole uh, selling point of one password, I guess. But yeah, even like, so Bthink this morning, I was thinking about Bthink and I'm working on adding edit links for notifications and emails that you get. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, because I've been using it a lot more, I went through like a period where a few months where I just had my, re okay, so I guess to back up, I think I talked about this, but I made an app called Bthink. I don't like talking, I don't like using to-do apps. Uh, I do use emails every day. However, so I made an app that you can add a, a reminder and it just emails you in the frequency at the time that you set. And that's it. That's all it does. Yep. Uh, so anyway, I was working on, I was looking at a couple of things like I want to use binary IDs or, or GUIDs for um, a certain thing for, you know, for part of the editing feature. So for example, like how do you authenticate a request to edit a notification from an email? So I was working on that and I was looking at it and I was like, well, I, in, in the user for sign up, I just have an email and a password. But for the user profile form, I also have first name and last name. And I was like, do I really, what do I need this for? I think I don't even use it. They're just there. There's, I mean, I don't really have any analytics in it and I'm not like using Mixpanel. I don't really care about any of that. I just want this thing to work for me. And if it works for other people, that's great. So that's one of those things where I was like, I don't really need this data. I can remove it safely and doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's like everyone, like all the default, all the tutorials of like Rails and Phoenix and Django and all the big friends, like they just default to, hey, create a user account for us, name, last name, email, password. Like we don't, we just kind of go on autopilot. I find that, that at that at that point um, where, hey, we, we need a user, let's put in all the fields that we expect the user to need um, without thinking like, okay, let's think two years in advance or five years on the line. Are we ever going to need that last name? And, you know, sometimes it would be nice to have that and you look back and say, damn, I wish at the start we started collecting that information. But I personally would rather be in that situation and request it when required than request it right up front. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the user's like, well, why? Like, I think I signed up something the other day and they wanted my postal code. And I was like, I, no. <laughs> why? What are you, you're not shipping me anything. <laughs> That's one thing that we do with DK a lot, or we talk about with DK a lot, is someone will ask, can we collect this information? And Paul and my first response is, why do we need that? Yep. Every like that's the default reaction is why do we need this piece of information? And we do. I mean, so we have we have information like you make purchases, you need to account. We need to have your first and last name to you know. We need to have an address that we can verify that you're not using stolen credit cards and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's Stripe verifies information, but we need it as well for showing order histories and receipts and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So we have it. Uh, and then, like you said, uh, the site asks for a postal code. For us, we don't actually store postal codes on users. So you can you can search uh, the site for you know stores near you. So you can enter a postal code and say, "I want to see stores within ten miles of this postal code," and it will it will show it to you. But at no point do we actually store that on a user record. I mean, we have addresses they saved in database, but again, that's for orders and receipts and shipping information, so people know where to send what. 
Yeah. We we were kind of thinking about that. Like, well, could, you know, should we store this? Like when a user enters a postal code, should we just store that on their account for later or for whatever? And we came up to the, to the conclusion that like, we don't need that. Like if anything, we can put it in local storage if you didn't want to have to ask them for a, a postal code again later on the site. Yep. But now that we're on SPA, like 100% on a, a single page application, we don't even need to do that because we just throw it in Vuex. And if they do a hard refresh, they'll just enter a postal code again, mm-hmm. or they'll click find my location and we'll use geolocation to find a postal code, you know? So it's one of those things where we don't really need to store that information in a cookie in, in local storage in the database or anything. We just don't really need it. It's finding the least amount of information you need. It's not, it's, you can't say, oh, you only ever need email and password. Like obviously certain things need more. Um, but it's just for your particular case, finding the, the least amount you can get away with and, and trying to stick to that. All I admit, marketing folk do not make this easy and not, not to harp on them. <laughs> but our marketing folk, they're like, oh, let's uh, let's load all these people into an email campaign and let's get their first yep. name, their last name, yep. their parents' name, their address. So it's like, no, what information is going to be put in the email? Just load their first name if that's all you're going to use to say hello, Sean, hello, Mikhail. Like, don't, do not load their whole entry from the database into the email thing. Like, just don't. <laughs> but obviously, they think that's good. So, I mean, it's funny because we don't really have a problem like that with DK. Like, everyone, I've, I've harped on it enough that everyone knows, like, you can't just harvest emails and blast people out like that. You can't, you can't really, shouldn't just do that. Uh, but I feel like those capybara memes where the capybara is like, over overwatching or watching over people. Yeah. Just like kind of squinty eyed, sitting still. Like that's what I feel like. I'm the arbiter of a user's data and I'm protecting it. I'm watching it. And uh, I'm standing up on the ice wall somewhere just looking over <laughs> user's data. Uh but yeah, it's 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 funny because it's not like they have bad intentions or just trying to do yeah. their job. And they have if they have more data, they could theoretically do a better job. I they could target certainly target people better, but that maybe is the whole issue, right? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Do you wanna do you wanna be seg- segmenting your users into different groups and and targeting them? Like that's I guess that's another discussion entirely. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is another discussion. And I'm sure we'll get into it at some point. So you you actually linked me something that I've been wanting to check into. I think it was called uh, marketing for developers. Yeah, some Justin Jackson. Yeah, he's also making what is it? Transistor. Transistor.fm. Um, I thought it was going to be a uh, like simple cost like product, but I guess you had to check out and it's not quite that. Oh yeah, I signed up for the list and they're saying that they're working on, I hope I'm not putting them on blast or putting this out there, but they're working on something that's not quite like a podcast hosting. It's more about podcasting as a business, but. Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, he mentioned and because I listened to one of his shows, I think he said it was podcasts for companies or something like that. That was kind of their, their angle. Oh yeah, the show is called uh, "Build Your SaaS." Is is that is what that show is called? Yeah, but you linked me the marketing for developers, and I was like, that sounds interesting because I don't know anything about that, and I should probably know something about it. Yeah. So like my whole my whole thing this last year was was like I have a little bit of downtime uh, here and there on the weekends. Like I don't want to be working all the time or coding all the time, but a couple hours here, like on Saturday and Sunday building something like Bethink or building something that could be useful to the people that I could sell for small amounts. You know, I think that's what I've been wanting to do is just kind of yep. not take the Drew Wilson approach because that's one person that I really think about that has done that in the past uh, is just putting lots of stuff out there. Uh, but that's kind of what I want to do is just make things that I find useful and then say, hey, if you want to throw two bucks to me a month, you can use this as much as you want and it'll just make sure that 
um, I can keep this thing going. And if things get tight, then I can't, then I don't shut it down, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so I don't really, I can build stuff, but I don't know how to market it. And I don't know how to, to I, I mean, I went to design school, but I dropped out a long time ago and I've kind of haven't flexed those skills. So I think marketing designer, something that I kind of wanted to focus in on. So I think like every weekend I try to do a little bit of a, a deep dive, like a mid dive on something. So this last weekend I was Googling about SEO and looking through Google's webmaster tool docs and looking through what the recommendations are and looking through just like trying to get a good baseline and like, okay, at base, at minimum, this is what you need to do to be able to um, say you're doing what you need to be doing for SEO or whatever, you know? And I think marketing is going to be one of those with things that I like dive into um, one of these weekends. Yeah, it's it's such a big field too, or, or just a big a big body of information out there because you can do it so many so many different ways that it's I like I have a couple side projects that I I don't think I've ever publicly shared. <laughs> I would love if people used it, but then I'd also feel obligated. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying to maintain it. Uh, where I think if I like I it's much like B think. So I'll just mention this one. It's called uh Ukulesa. I actually don't know what I called it anymore. And all it does is it watches AMA repos on GitHub that you've started. So people uh I don't know who started it actually, where they have open a repo and you open an issue and every issue you open is supposed to be a question, but like uh, an ask me anything, which is I think Reddit started that kind of trend of mm-hmm. uh, question asking. Um so you open an issue and hopefully at some point they will reply and then in my, in my case, close the issue. Um, so if you start a bunch of AMA repos, I'll I'll see that, I'll check that, I'll monitor those, and anytime an issue gets closed, I'll send you an email saying, hey, this issue was closed, here was the question, here was the guy's answer. And, and so some people are actually really good at, at answering people's questions, and I get emails like every week of people having conversations back and forth. That's cool. It, it's, it works. Like it's, it's sitting on a Roku right now. I'll probably move it over to Flynn at some point. But but it was built for me, and and the if anyone else uses it, great. I think like two or three other people actually get emails every every week for it. And it's like I could go and market it. I could you know set up a Twitter account and set up a Facebook page or whatever. I guess whatever marketing for developers teaches you to do. But but I guess I personally am not in the game of trying to trying to make products on the side for 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 anything beyond myself or my like friends. Right. It's just like. Even at work, there's just so much for our sites that that we could do that we don't do because it's like, well, what do you do? Do you still need keywords in your head? Right? It's just title and description <laughs> and link backs. Do you need? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does how does Google handle spas? I know for the longest time, single page applications that were like, no, server rendered or pre rendered io because mm-hmm. Google's not gonna parse that correctly. And now I think Google's pretty good. So like, I'm, you know, what I mean, like, yeah, yeah, constantly changing and evolving, and it's. I'm glad that people are trying. It's it's much like do designers code or do developers learn sysadmin? Like do do we learn marketing and SEO or do we find someone else to kind of take that side on? Yeah, yeah. I guess for me, it's a little, like I, I'm a little bit interested in it because I don't really know anything about it. To, to up to this point, I've just been using what the Lighthouse tool in Chrome, like because that does a pretty good job in showing you, hey, Google can pre, like Google can index the site, uh, or hey, you don't have alt tags. It's like a good baseline, like accessibility, uh, SEO performance, time to first paint, all that stuff. It's kind of like a really good overview of how you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to the point of like having a spa. I mean, so Design Collective, we we went spa for a number of reasons, not necessarily just to be on it because. Uh, we had, when we talked about like launching custom domains, and so now we have three apps. We have the AVI, we have the full on DK.com Nuxt app, and then we have a subset of the full Nuxt app 
that we call the Stores app, which it's built via Symlinks, actually. So the the Nux Stores app, so the custom domains don't actually, it's just like a store page, right? So there's a lot less. There's not the checkout flow. There's not admin flow. There, you know, it's a lot less. So we use Symlinks to move certain things over and we use a different entry point. So uh, npm run start dash stores instead of npm run start. And that boots up the, the mini Nuxt app. So now we have two Nuxt apps and an Elixir app. And uh, all of this SS, is all of the Nuxt app is stuff is SSR'd. And so yep. we weren't having, not that we were having problems with SEO stuff before because we had a large portion of our site was already being run in view and booted up after the initial render. But now, now the browsers actually do get full on HTML. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see if if anything changes in that area. I don't like it's weird because people go back and forth. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's not fine. Yeah. And I think Google Google does render JavaScript, but also you can do things incorrectly. And I think in Lighthouse it looks for render blocking stuff that happens. So mm-hmm. for example, if you have a spa but you have you're doing things that block render, then Google doesn't necessarily index the entire page, for example. But anyway, like yeah, yeah, I use the Lighthouse tool. Do you open up the Web Inspector? It's just a tab in there. Mm-hmm. But I'll probably be doing a dive into that stuff here shortly. So you guys, are you guys fully Nuxt? You yeah, you're fully Nuxting now, right? It's not. So we have next week the Nuxt app is going to be the primary um, server. So right now we have. It's kind of cool actually how we did it. And props to Heroku for allowing us to do this. But with the pipelines and stuff, so we have prod servers, production servers up. And we have a secret, a super secret URL that our team's been using to test the new app. Mm-hmm. And we have a separate production API server. And then we have the the regular, like current live, uh, what I'll call now the legacy app, which is the Phoenix View app together. Yep. And those, the API and the Phoenix View app are just using, they're connected to the same database, much like when I moved from Rails to Elixir. Yep. Uh, both apps are running, they just connected to the same database. And there's some concerns there, like you got to make sure that only one server is running jobs, obviously, just, just small things like that. But uh, we have it set up like that. So going live will actually just be changing a C name from one server to another server on Heroku. Okay, so you're not going to do like some A-B splitting, like A-B testing to... No one's got time. Nobody's got time for that. There's only two of us. <laughs> uh, uh, does Heroku, Heroku doesn't ha- help in that with that anymore? Because I know that that's one of the nice things Netlify does actually for front end stuff is like... There's literally a slider you can use to A/B test. <laughs> it's really cool. No, they don't. Um, they don't provide that. So uh, we talked about Netlify. The big thing was uh, we need we need so half. Of, okay, when I say we have three apps, we actually have three apps because it's not like the Nux apps are just npm run Nux. We actually have Express servers underneath. Yeah, yeah. That are doing things. So we're proxying. We're having to proxy requests through. Um, also, the session stuff on the client side is stored in Redis now. Uh, so we're using Express Session, I think it's called. Uh, yeah. And um, so th- it's actually like legitimately a whole nother app because we have the whole Express thing that ends up, you know, starting up Nux renderer and all that stuff. And 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 it actually does the server render on the Express side. There's no more. Bo- there's just more moving parts. There's just more moving parts. That's all. So yeah, it's, it's not like you can take it off the shelf with an occasion session library to, to do what you guys are doing, right? You got to you got to do some do some manual plumbing in the back. I mean, I'm not. None of the Nux stuff I've done have been at the scope that obviously DK. I I, I really really like Nux for like statically generated sites where you just you Nux generate and you send that up to Netlify and it it handles it from there. 
it's for like blogs or uh, like marketing pages or static informational pages. It, it, it's it's nice because you get to template in quote unquote template with view layouts and pages and oh yeah yeah stuff like that versus because I know you were saying like the Hugo or Hexo or Jekyll like you got to always learn their individual templating languages. Yep. Where with Nuxt and I guess in the React world next you can just you can just use Vue and React to, to handle that, right? And it just makes it so much more enjoyable to to do stuff like that. Yeah. It, yeah, it seems really cool. I haven't really dug into that. I know it's super extendable in the terms of like you could actually run Nuxt generate and it'll actually make real API calls, get the response and build a static site based off of that, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah that's what I do for my like my personal sites like that. It's not it's not hitting an API, it's hitting uh it's hitting an internal GraphQL API because it's parsing its uh, markdown files. Yeah, I mean that's the promise, right? Like you, you, you're productive with Vue. You don't want to learn another templating language. Yeah, you're productive with Nux, so you don't want to you don't want to deploy an overly convoluted site, right? You just want a static site. That's all you need. So you can use the tool chain that you're used to, the tools that you're used to, to to, to achieve that, which I think is pretty cool. So I ended up like like I said, I moved everything to Docu. I ended up moving my personal site from Hugo to Nux. Um, I ended up moving the DNC dot uh, show site uh, into Nuxt, and all of those two, my site and the DNC show site, actually use a simple uh, simple cast API. Mm-hmm. So they're not static uh, right now, but I guess I could make them static by running generate. I'll have to think about that. Well, it was good. It was good talking to you. I actually got to run uh, to eat some food. You got to go have a barbecue. Yeah. Well, I will, uh, I guess I'll talk to you later. Yeah, sounds good.